0: But we're very grateful for everybody to to come um, and celebrate this book launch uh, of my colleague, Professor Eric Kaufman, uh, and um, his book, White Shift, uh, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. Uh, My name's Rob Singh. I'm also in the Department of Politics. I'll be chairing this evening's uh, event. And we have a very distinguished panel to discuss this very serious um, and important book. Um, We have Manira Mirza, uh, who is Deputy Mayor for Education and Culture of London. She's just been appointed um, as Executive Director of Culture at King's College, uh, and she's the author of The Politics of Culture, The Case for Universalism. Next to her, we have David Goodhart, um, who I'm sure you know was a founding editor of Prospect magazine, director of the think tank Demos, currently head of the Demography, Immigration, and Integration Unit at the Think Tank Policy Exchange, and author most recently of The Road to Somewhere, The Populist Revolt and the Future of Politics. And next to him we have John Judas, very distinguished writer, author of most recently two books, The Populist Explosion in 2016, and available as we speak now most recently, The Nationalist (laughs) Revival, Trade, Immigration, and the revolt against globalisation. We should also hopefully have, um, very shortly at some point, um, the very distinguished writer and broadcaster Trevor Phillips, um, who was formerly head of the Commission for Racial Equality and the Equality and Human Rights Commission. So I'm I'm sure you'll agree we have uh, some top-notch speakers to um, respectfully interrogate uh, what Eric's thesis is. Just to outline um, how... Uh, this will pan out. I'm going to introduce um, Cassiana, Eric's editor at Penguin, who's going to say a few words about the White Shift book. Eric's going to then summarise some of his arguments for about ten minutes and then the panellists have each agreed to talk for five to ten minutes max um, on Eric's thesis and then we'll open it up to question and answers. Uh, one thing to point out, I think, as you'll well be aware if you've read any of the reviews that have already come out in all sorts of publications about Eric's book, this is a serious scientific and sensitive work of scholarship about a very tricky and controversial subject. It's possible, I think, to argue that it's even a test in terms of its reception as to how far British public life in general, and academia in particular, is still wedded to the open-minded, carefully reasoned pursuit of evidence-based truth or whether we are on an inexorable path to shutting down certain controversial topics and forwarding and deepening an era of intellectual conformism. So I hope very much that you'll be able to treat this topic and treat the panel and their views with the respect and the seriousness that they in turn will treat yours. And with that, I'll hand over to Cassiana.
1: I'm Eric's uh, very proud publisher, Uh, and in my line of business we deal in stories, so I'll start with the story rather than the argument, and then uh, you'll hear more about the argument. Um, I'll start by saying that I still remember the first time um, I came across Eric's work. It was in the surreal days after the Brexit referendum, when everyone was beyond confused, just as we still are, Um, and journalists were trying to come up with some kind of unifying theory of Brexit, um, based on the very predictable narratives uh, we tell ourselves about the economy and the usual ideological splits uh, in the UK. And in the midst of it, I stumbled on a post Eric had written for the LSE blog that really made me stop and rethink what I thought I knew about our political situation. The headline said, It's not the economy, stupid. Brexit as a story of personal values. And in this piece, Eric very carefully looked at the cultural divides within British society to gain a deep evidence-based understanding of who voted Leave and who voted Remain. And among many other great things, he showed how voting for Brexit correlated with what people thought about the death penalty, um, which was definitely not something you heard about from the usual pundits. Um, So I thought this was a very original approach, and I was really hoping that Eric would do a book. Uh, and luckily, he did. He wrote a book, and not just any book, but a really big, ambitious book that takes a very um, you know long hard look at the big picture. And in a world where we're constantly exposed to political noise, that feels incredibly important um, that he's able to take a step back and really ask the very hard questions we should be asking about our future. and I think what's extraordinary about Eric is that he does all of this in a very calm forensic way, uh, even as he's dealing with you know, some of the hottest political topics of our time, as you mentioned, um, such as immigration and ethnicity. And in addition to being the rare expert who's um, as comfortable with data sets as he is with cultural history, Eric is also a dream author. Um, It's not often that an author who says they'll deliver the book in a year actually does so, exactly bang on time. And it's even rarer to receive 600 pages that are basically in very good shape and come complete with very sophisticated graphs. Um, and now that the book is out in the world and receiving really great reviews, um, Eric, of course, chose to celebrate it his own way, which is not just by having drinks and canapes, but actually inviting people to engage with the book publicly. Um, so thank you, Eric, for writing such an illuminating book, and I'll uh, leave the panel to uh, discuss it. I
2: just... Well, thanks for those very kind words, both of you. Um, and uh, I can't believe it's finally here. I know it's a long read. Um, hopefully it will repay the effort. Um, and I was very pleased to be able to actually write that much. I didn't know whether uh, a publisher would cut me off at you know, 80,000 words. Uh, so I kept kind of asking Cassiana, can I go a little bit more and a little bit more? And they seemed to, uh, she seemed to be okay with that. So. Um, Anyway, I'm going to, because I'm sort of a nerdy academic, I will give a presentation, which I thought was on here, but... Uh, <laughs> um, hang on. It's not going Oh. No, that's... Okay. Oh, I didn't like the picture from the bookstore. Okay. Um, so I should say just a few things, uh, one of which is that... Um, uh, is, is also just a quick note because I note that uh, Matthew Goodwin is in the room and Trevor <coughs> Phillips will be here soon. Uh, just a quick note that um, we have got, there is a debate that's taking place on the 6th of December called Immigration and Diversity Politics, a Challenge to Liberal Democracy. I, I very much um, uh, urge you to check that out and, and on my Twitter and on Matt's Twitter you can find a link to that upcoming debate. Um, also, a hashtag if anyone wants to tweet is just at white shift lowercase. Okay, so about this book, um, really I've been studying uh, concepts of national identity and ethnicity, particularly majority group ethnicity, for over 20 years. So, in a way, this is largely an extension of that uh, long focus. And the book White Shift, really, White Shift has two meanings. If you like, the White Shift 1.0 is really about the decline in the white share of the population in western countries, that is ethnic majority share is going to be declining. Uh, Right now the US is about 60% white American and many West European countries are about uh, sort of 80-85%, the main immigrant receiving countries, 80-85% ethnic majorities. That's going to decline substantially so that by 2050 in the United States non-Hispanic whites are projected to be a minority of the population as they already are in most major US Uh, metropolitan areas, Canada will be in the same position in around 2050 as will (laughs) New Zealand. And then towards the end of the century, countries like Britain, the Netherlands, France will be following suit. So it's against that backdrop uh, that a lot of the trends I'm talking about take on importance, particularly immigration. So I'm arguing that immigration is very much a lightning rod because it speaks to that identity and security um, which is is generated (coughs) by this background ethnic shift The second meaning, however, of white shift is really to do with um, the long term, if you like, the long term demographic shift uh, towards an increasingly mixed race population. And so that is something that's not going to occur in, in any kind of scale until we get towards the end of the century. But into the next century, the majority of the population in Western countries will be mixed race. And I'm arguing that this mixed race group will largely inherit the mantle of uh, the myths, symbols, and memories of the ethnic majority. So that's the, a shift really in within the white population. The meaning of white or eth- white ethnic majorities will shift to become more transracial. Hopefully that will become clearer as I go through here. Just to say, however, that I knew that the, the book would cause a fair bit of noise, uh, particularly on the extreme right of the spectrum and also on the left of the spectrum, and I'm already getting it from both sides in spades, and this is just from the, the alt-right site, The Daily Stormer, which is arguing that um, Kaufman is trying to sell white folks on the idea that racial extinction isn't really that bad. Yeah. And then he talk, <laughs> they talk about me being, you know, my mom being half Chinese, half Costa Rican, and be, my father being Jewish. So that's not a good, uh, a good brand for The Daily Stormer. Um, anyway, so we've got, we've got sort of videos with tens of thousands of views already out there raking me over the coals for this. Uh, on, but it's not just on the all right. We're also uh, there's also some criticism coming from the left, which I'm going to talk about as well. And so what I've done, because I'm a university lecturer, I've prepared, <laughs> I've prepared a report card, um, and and using the British marking system here, first two one two two. I could have called this two two in the third or something. Might have been more accurate. But in any case, what you see is that the sort of central, you know, the center ground. Publications, uh, Evening Standard, Sunday Times, FT, Economist, uh, Times, Prospect, etc., have generally been positive. I'm giving a sort of first or two one to most of those reviews, um, but the only one where I, which I think was more mixed was Kenan Malik's review in the Guardian. Uh, I think that might be indicative of the fact that there are some things in in the book which might might rankle with a more left wing audience. Um, so just to say, I think part part of the uh, intention of this book was to raise conversation around some of these controversial identity questions. Um, central to the book is this idea of majority ethnicity—that ethnicity is not just a minority thing, but majorities also are ethnic because ethnicity is about a belief in common ancestry—and um, also this this notion of what I call ethno-traditional nationalism. Our debate is very much around this concept of. Ethnic nationalism versus civic nationalism. You're either an ethnic nationalist and you believe that only members of the white majority, let's say, can be citizens of the nation and everyone else is excluded, or you're a civic nationalist and you believe that it's uh, a value-based national identity. It's fully inclusive. Actually, where a lot of populist right voters are is somewhere in the middle, I'm arguing. Um, That is, they are what I call ethno-traditional nationalists, They accept that you can be of any different ethnic background and be a member of the nation, uh, but at the same time, they are attached to a traditional uh, or an ethnic composition that they knew growing up, let's say. And so they want to conserve that by slowing down, not stopping, but slowing immigration in order to facilitate assimilation. So that is kind of a position that a lot of populist right voters, and actually a significant, probably a bare majority of a lot of Western value publics, that's where they are. Um, In the book, I sort of talk about four phenomena, four responses, if you like, to immigration and ethnic change by white majority groups. Um, The first and most important is what I call fight. If you think of fight-or-flight responses, um, so the the sort of fighting of this shift towards a more diverse population um, is about supporting... Um, anti-immigration <clears throat> parties, politicians, or platforms, so that could be a new party like UKIP or the Front National, it could be a politician like Donald Trump within an established party. But there's also, it's also important to talk about, um, and, and which I don't think is mentioned enough in the literature, uh, the a liberal anti-racist moralism which has played a very important part in Western cultures, particularly since the 1960s. And the development of that, um, of that uh, sort of moral outlook is, is very important to this story because the interaction between opposition to immigration and viewing opposition to immigration as a racist thing is a very important interaction. So for a while, that repress mechanism, trying to repress concern about ethnic change operates strongly to mute uh, concerns over um, ethnic shifting, to mute that fight response. But then at some point, the far right makes a breakthrough and the system tips. And actually, that attempt at repression becomes a force multiplier, I would argue, for uh, the populist right. The other two responses just briefly flee, which is the idea of white flight or white avoidance, which is more of a residential and social network response by which um, members of white majorities may retreat to heavily white uh, residential neighborhoods, or uh, as, as Don, um, Robert Putnam, the political scientist, just terms it hunkering down within ethnically homogeneous social networks. Even if they live in a diverse area, they socialize within relatively homogeneous uh, networks. And then the last response is this join, which refers to uh, uh, people uh, members of the white majority increasingly encountering members of minority groups. Uh, at both as friends and ultimately through intermarriage, which is what gets us to that mixed race majority that I talk about in the uh, next century. Um, as Cassiana mentioned, one of the things—oops, this is uh, anyway—a whole bunch of slides are missing, which is probably a good thing. I'm just gonna—I'm just gonna say that um, a lot of what I talk about. Yes, that is blank space. Um, lot- so I put a lot of emphasis then on on. The rise of populism being driven very much by the issue of immigration and, and identity threat, as, as perceived by a certain chunk of the population. So, conservative, or what social psychologists call authoritarian, which means a sort of an order-seeking, anti-diversity type of or anti-difference outlook, um, is something that has a has a strong base, a, a strong and deep basis in psychological values. And and the work of Karen Stenner shows that this orientation is sort of between a third and a half heritable. So there's a very strong, deep ingrained um, element to this. And, And so rather than talk about the left behind in class terms, rich and poor, working class, middle class, or talk about people in rural versus urban areas, I think the more important divide is in the value space between people who prefer stability and homogeneity and people who prefer <coughs> change and diversity and this is something that is not easily an amenable to cultural learning but is actually strongly rooted in uh, in values. And so what we we find is you know if you take a place like London it's not the case that London voted remain and the rest of the you know the north voted leave actually almost 40% of London voted leave. <coughs> almost 25% or about 25% of two person couple households had a difference on the Brexit vote. That just shows you how this psychological divide cuts through a lot of a lot of the concepts that have, many pundits have used to define populism and the value splits and polarization actually don't work that well, particularly when you put them in quantitative models. You see that the models that are just using class, age, region don't do particularly well in predicting things like Brexit vote, Trump vote, whereas models that use uh, authoritarian value scales um, questions such as, was, you know, were things in America better in the past, those sorts of questions, you get a much stronger uh, model. And, and I think that speaks to the, to the sort of psychological basis for this division. So not so much a, a class or regional base, but a psychological base. The second thing I want to talk a little bit about is the interplay between this fight response and the repressed response. That repressed response is linked, again, to that ideological development, the turn of the left away from Economics to culture, uh, and and we, I chart this in the book through the rise of a discourse around racism and sexism and so on, post 1960s, but especially post late 1980s, we start to get an uptick, um, and that's continued. That's had a second s- sort of surge since about 2013, uh, and that you know that shift on the left has had a profound impact on electoral politics. I think early on, say to, say in the 1960s, 70s, 80s. Um, the concept of racism expands to include, for example, opposition to immigration, to include the idea of nationalism, full stop. Um, starting in the late 90s with the rise of Le Pen, the rise of the FPO, um, you start to see that rolling back. And, and one, of the, one of the arguments is in the book is that because the issue of immigration was taken off the table by the expansion of the anti-racist norm, that actually created a blockage in the main parties, which allowed a political opportunity for populist right parties to emerge. It's a bit like if you th- I use the example of uh, selling of alcohol, Pro- if there's a prohibition on selling alcohol, then you're not going to get alcohol sold by pubs and saloons, but instead you'll get bootleggers emerging to provide for- cater for this demand. And I think that's largely. That largely explains why we see the emergence of phenomena such as Trump, the Sweden Democrats, the AFD. You see that very clearly. I think Britain is somewhat of a different case, uh, well, partially a different case. But still, this idea that, there, that the, to some extent the overreach of the new left and of, of liberalism in this area did allow for an opportunity for populist right parties to move in and cater to this demand. Now, what's happened since is that the mainstream parties have seen how well the populist parties are doing and have tried to take over elements of their program. And that's then led to an erosion of these anti-racist norms and a shrinking of those anti-racist norms. And I think this process has actually gone too far. So we're now talking about things like burqa bans, which are an infringement on religious liberty. So I think the process has gone too far, but it's just important to note for the thesis that the argument is there's a very important dialectic between uh, ideological developments on the liberal left, and the rise of populism. It's not just about immigration, but it's also about these value conflicts. And we even see that you know, in, in stark terms in the U.S. with the politicization of political correctness by Donald Trump in the 2016 election. The other thing I want to talk about is polarization because as the populist right rises, and as immigration, immigration restriction rises up the agenda, you get a response and reaction also from Uh, The liberal left. We see that with the rise of the Green Party in Germany in response to the AFD, and also with some of the value shifts among white liberals in the United States in response to Trump. So that then leads to a a polarizing dynamic. Um, Okay, I'm just going to, for some reason, UCL doesn't like Birkbeck's slides, so I'm going to forget that. uh, But, um, so yeah, so that takes us through this. Interplay between what I call fight and what I call repress. But in, we can also talk about the flee response. And here I look at uh, residential segregation. And residential segregation has largely been thought of in terms of minorities self segregating. And yet a lot of the data that I review shows that, in fact, minorities are moving out of their areas of concentration. And so minorities are actually desegregating in many, in the United States and Britain, where I've looked at this quite closely, but white majorities, for example, in London, the only group that's moving towards their own areas of concentration are the white British. Uh, And what we see in the United (coughs) States similarly is these, ethnic minorities are moving out of their concentration areas, meeting each other, but the white British are moving out of those super diverse areas for more homogenous areas. So white retreat is definitely part of this picture. One of the responses to ethnic change, similarly as Robert Putnam notes, um, that hunkering down response, white uh, majorities in Europe and the United States tend to have very white social networks, uh, which is another thing that I show, even if they live in heavily diverse um, areas. So just to, to, the last bit of the book I talk about is is Join, and, and this is really the um, the intermarriage and uh, interracial friendship response, uh, which, is, which is starting off at a relatively slow rate, um, but is going to make a big impact and then explode exponentially towards the end of the century so if we uh, Edward Morgan who's here in the audience from who was at the London School of Hygiene and helped me do some of the uh, racial projections for the UK, what we see for example is the mixed race share uh, is only at about seven percent of England and Wales population in 2050 but by the end of the century it's approaching 30 percent and then by you know two decades later it's almost 75 percent so you get this ex- exponential <coughs> growth. My argument is that as that mixed-race majority emerges, it will largely um, attach itself to the myths, symbols, and memories of the white majority and take over those. Um, and I have, there are very, various reasons. We've seen this historically, and I give many examples. I don't have time uh, to summarize that. 600 pages in about two minutes here. Um, last thing I'm gonna say is just in terms of some of the policy responses. What I argue is that instead of thinking about uh, a sort of hymn sheet version of national identity that everyone must sign up to. It's more useful to think about a menu where, yes, there are some core values, but then you've also got some options that people can select to, co- to construct their own version of national identity. Uh, and that for ethnic majority conservatives, what's very important for them I think, is, is to, to have a sense of stability. So the idea that immigrants are arriving, but they're being absorbed, and then essentially things aren't changing that much. That is the kind of message that they need to, to believe in and see a future, really, for their ethnic group in this rising mixed-race population. On the other hand, um, and the other issue, of course, concerns immigration, because until we get to this mixed-race majority, we are going to have an increasingly diverse society, and that some of these, and this, this period of increased diversity is going to be quite a, a, a testing period in a way. Um, and so I think it's, it's critical that we are able to have an open discussion about issues such as immigration that are not overladen with um, charges of racism, for example, that people should be able to have a good faith argument as they do about tax rates. So if one group wants to have lower immigration and one group wants to have higher, there should be a middle ground that people can agree on rather than one side accusing the other of being unpatriotic and one side accusing the other of racism, which just leads to the kind of value conflicts which we're seeing particularly uh, in the United States and it's something that I would think uh, we would want to avoid. With that, I think I've talked long enough. I'm going to turn it over to Rob and you will...
0: Thank, thanks very much, Eric. That's uh, quite a challenge to summarise those six hundred pages in, in those <laughs> ten minutes. So we've we've got a full complement of panelists now, and so um, as I said, we've asked them to keep them um, to five to ten minutes max, and then we'll open um, the discussion up to Q and A. So Manera, then David, then John, and then Trevor. I mean, Eric,
3: okay. Um, thank you. I'd like to thank Eric for um, inviting me to, to be on this panel and uh, congratulate him on this um, this book, which I think is extremely well written. Uh, it's an exhaustive account of uh, demographic change and uh, cultural and political context, and I think it's a, a really important contribution to the debate. Um, I think it's also very carefully written, and um, this is, a, as people have said. Uh, a very sensitive subject, and um, I'm not easily scared by ideas. And there were times I have been even when I was clutching my pearls when uh, I was reading it. But I um, I, I felt that Eric navigated um this quite, um, quite tricky terrain I mean, with with grace and with intelligence. And um, and I think it, it hopefully will um, it, you know it will win people over, and, and, and especially those who um, have denounced the book without reading it. Um, which I'm sure are quite a few. Um, the, the central argument, one of the central arguments that, that um, Eric um, makes um, I found um, very convincing, which is that um, ethnic identities and an attachment to a national identity uh, uh, persists um, despite all the um, shame that's often attached to it in our current political climate. People still feel uh, this very strong sense that their, their ethnic identity or their culture matters. And um, this has become a very powerful force um, in the rise of, um, of populism. And uh, he also explains think, extremely well the way in which um, the liberal left or the left modernist kind of um, grouping, however you want to describe them or it, uh, has effectively repressed. Um, uh, that feeling amongst um, the the wider public. And whilst that has very helpfully created a taboo around racism um, in the last uh, 30-40 years, and we shouldn't underplay that, that is a very important achievement, I think, um, for all my complaints about political correctness, I do think on the whole um, a large part of it has been welcome. It's also repressed this um, this feeling and, uh, in a sense, um, turned it into a kind of poison. Um, which um, uh, is, uh, it's kind of seeping out, and the, the cracks are starting to show. And um, in some ways, the dam was broken, and that's that. That is partly uh, uh, what explains um, uh, the, the sort of current feeling about national identity. Um, I, I I painted that to be a very negative picture. In many ways, it's a positive thing. I think it is an expression of something that people feel, um, but has too long been seen as a toxic thing and not something to discuss. Um, and I think this book actually helps us to, to find the language uh, and the evidence to discuss that work. There's, there's a huge amount I agree with in the book, and I, I could talk at length about different aspects of it. But there are certain things that I would question or I would challenge very calm. Um, uh, in the um, in the discussion about how people feel about immigration, and also about immigrants, and they're not necessarily the same thing. Um, he tends to downplay um, people's economic concerns and. Uh, presents them as really a kind of fiction that people can construct because they don't want to talk about their sense of cultural loss, that um, immigration is affecting the society in which they live, but they they can't find an acceptable language to talk about it in, and therefore their concerns um, tend to focus on uh, population growth and and economic um, issues. I I think that that is not entirely true. I, I do think that people have a strong sense of Economic impact of mass immigration particularly in the last um, fifteen years, and in some ways, um, the economic nationalist argument uh, that someone like Trump represents is in itself a cultural uh, kind of cultural phenomenon. You know, and what they recognise is that the you know the decline of certain industrial towns, the way of life, um, the fact that jobs have been outsourced, <coughs> the fact that people are coming and taking jobs at a lower Lower wage. Um, but those are things they, they experience in, um, in both an economic dimension, but also cultural dimension. And I think what they also experience, or what they feel, um, based on, you know, and this is you know not demonstrated by, you know, by graphs or evidence, but just from what I read in, um, in journalistic accounts, is the sense that um, the elite is not interested in their particular way of life. Um, and so, cultural loss um, is uh, is a sense of political. Um, uh, political of of betrayal and uh, uh, is something that's driven, I think, in large part by um, <coughs> economic change. Um, and so, I, I you know I would, I would question whether um, you know if 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 um, American society was making everyone richer uh, or British society was making everyone richer, would then would people feel that cultural loss so intensely? Um, I'm, I'm not sure they would. Um, I also think population growth is a, a major concern for people. I don't think that's fiction. Um, I think people do worry about um, resources and the way of coping with population growth. Um, I think some of those concerns are overplayed. I think um, we can cope with actually quite considerable population growth in this country, but I, I, don't, I, I do think people um, are genuinely worried about it. Um, I had a question as well about the um, the way in which uh people's attitudes to immigration is determined to some extent about the kinds of immigrants that are coming over, not just in terms of their cultural differences or whether they integrate or get married, and I, I think those are factors, but their education skills base. And I was quite intrigued in your description of Canada, which is has a relatively benign, um uncontroversial uh, kind of uh uh debate about immigration. There isn't that same toxicity around immigration candidate Canada um, um, in, in your book. Um, perhaps that has something to do with the points based system, in the sense that the people who are coming are, you know, of a certain class and a certain educational background, and that tends to take away the fear that people might have that they're um, they're going to affect the, the kind of the, the working classes. So I don't know if you and I think Australia is in a similar um position. So you know, would a point-space system mitigate some of the concerns that people do have about immigration uh and cultural loss? And then um I suppose my my final point um is about whiteness itself and um I I, I think you describe very well the way in which ethnic culture is experienced by a lot of people um as a kind of um or treated by those people as a kind of racial thing, but in fact it can it's much more flexible and fluid than that. And what we see, the kinds of people that we see as white today are different to how we might have seen whiteness in the past. Um, so there's a there's a degree of elasticity around whiteness. Um, but I think that that British culture itself, British ethnic culture is the thing that people feel that they're losing more than anything. And um, and in fact, you you, know, you see this when you know second and third generation immigrants in this country um, complain about immigrants coming over and not, you know, not being British enough. Um, and, and you know, they're obviously not harking back to their own sense of ancestry and you know whiteness. They're they're expressing a sense of loss as well. And I I, I wonder if um, really what we haven't done in this country and in America to, to an extent is we haven't tried to assimilate people. Um, in any positive way, with a positive cultural script. Um, in fact, when immigrants come over, we have, you know, for 30 years, essentially trying to um, reinforce that sense of difference. It's a positive thing, but the effect of that is that we've, we've undermined this idea of a coherent British ethnic culture. And I don't think it necessarily has to be about whiteness. Um, but but it, it has become a bit about whiteness because we haven't really tried to emphasize anything um, that might be more inclusive. Um, and uh, just a final plug um, for something that I've done. I, I co-founded earlier this year a blog with some other ethnic minority writers called All in Britain, AllinBritain.org, and, um, and David was involved in some of the early conversations around that. And it was it was really our attempt to try and reset the debate and to say, well, you know, immigrants, you know, we are children of immigrants, we do not want to be excluded from the British cultural narrative either. we think that the British ethnic tradition matters, we think it has some value and maybe in the next, you know, few years it's actually, you know, immigrants themselves who will start to, uh, to champion an idea of a national identity and say, you know, we're not as worried about it as all you liberal people think we are, we actually think this is important and it matters to us too. Um, I could say a lot more but I will not in the interests of Time, but, but
4: thank you. It's a, it's a great evening. Mm. Okay. Thank, thank you. Me? Okay. Um, is this working? Yeah. 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 Um, well, Eric, well, uh, thanks for writing this uh, very impressive book, and uh, thanks also for granting me a Q1 for my review of it in Sunday Times. Um, um, it, it is quite a long and exhausting read, but um, I, I, did, um, I read every word uh, um, profitably. Um, I myself got involved in, in these issues about 15 years before I wrote a, uh, an essay in, in Prospect magazine that was reprinted in the Guardian called Too Diverse? Question mark, which was looking at the, the conflict, um, I think particularly for the modern left, between its two principles it particularly cherishes, that of solidarity and diversity and and looking at the extent to which they conflict, um, based on the simple premise that people are ready to to share with, to trust people with whom they are familiar. Uh, They don't necessarily have to look like them, um, but uh, people tend to be ready to share with people who they have a history in common with. Um, they have a language in common with, they have a culture in common with. Um, and indeed that argument kind of smuggled in, I think, a second premise, which is that that groups matter to people, something that, that I think a lot of modern liberals find um, uncomfortable. The groups can be fuzzy at the edges, they can be very fluid, but they, they matter. Um, anyway, soon after I'd, I'd written that, um, uh, that article which caused a bit of a stir, um, I met this very polite Canadian, called Eric, um, who said the most incredibly shocking things um, in a quiet voice and with a charming smile. Um, shocking things like, um, ethnicity is, is, is nothing to be anxious about. It simply means shared ancestry and myths of ancestry. Um, We also talked shockingly about this concept of asymmetrical multiculturalism. The idea that um, white people are actually not a different species from everybody else. They also have an interest in uh, preserving a way of life and a culture and so on. Um, um, Anyway, that that, uh, helped a great deal in in the development of my thinking. Um, and, And recently I've been... Um, I mean, influenced by by this book and by other things, I've been sort of thinking about um, the whole concept of kind of majority rights. And um, obviously, majorities are different from minorities. Um, Majorities tend to be highly differentiated. Obviously, minorities tend to be highly differentiated too. But uh, majorities have, have a kind of lower consciousness of their of their their group ethnicity. At least until they start to become, until they, until they start to lose their majority status in neighbourhoods, towns and even countries. Um, um, and obviously, um, majorities tend to um, dominate power structures, they tend to own most of the stuff, they tend to, um, they tend to dominate the higher status jobs uh, in a way that, that newcomers <coughs> may do eventually, but, uh, but, it, but it takes time. Obviously, the majority dominates the school curriculum, the national ceremonies, the the language is theirs, and so on. Um, But what happens when when majorities stop being majorities or when they move closer to stopping majorities? Does the issue then, does the idea of of majority rights um, then start to become relevant? And I think, and actually Eric argues in the book, I think persuasively, that... um, (coughs) It's important to hold on to this idea that, that the state doesn't belong to any ethnicity. The state belongs to citizens. Um, but the idea of majority um, or members of ethnic majorities, or perhaps subsets, subgroups of the majority, having interests, uh, I think is a perfectly reasonable one. And I think this is more in a way about politics than it is about, about law. And um, as and, you know, all the... The kind of evidence that Eric provides in the book shows um, the main interest, um, at least of, of, of some members of the ethnic majority, is in stability. You know nothing more controversial in a way than stability for their their group and their way of life and their worldview, uh, if they can be have, if they can be said to have one. Um, and but this is a this is an essentially kind of defensive, not an assertive impulse. Um, and, and stability. What does stability mean? I mean, it essentially means sort of slowing down ethnic demographic change um, through through lower levels of immigration. But I think it's also very importantly linked to this idea um, that, again, Eric describes in the book, that um, that the strong group attachments that people still value, um, whether it's going to be a more abstract national one or to kind of people like us who live around here kind of feelings, that these strong group attachments do not, uh, and I think this is, this is a sort of um, a, 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 an error often made by the liberal left, it does not have to translate into hostility to the other. And there is uh, and there's a great deal of social psychological evidence um, that, that, it, that it isn't doing that. And I think that that rubs up against the more kind of all-encompassing definitions of racism that don't allow for that, that tend to see strong national group attachments as inherently racist or xenophobic. Um, And I think um, Eric's work is very valuable in contesting that. Of course, racism exists, and Eric has a very meticulous definition of it and applies it to various examples. I think you you described the famous Nigel Farage poster. What what was the slogan on the poster? Uh, Breaking point. Breaking point uh, as clearly racist. but there is a difference between racism and cultural conservatism. seems to be the, the very important message that, um, that you are making and that some of your critics, and indeed the critics of um, Matt Goodwin's book, Will Davis in The Guardian, today or yesterday, didn't seem to grasp this point or, or, or won't accept this point that there is that distinction. Um, so that maybe there is no, I mean it's impossible in a way to imagine there being a kind of right to remain a majority. I mean this is a this is not, not not an imaginable right, really. But I think there is some sort of implicit right. Um, you know, we think about we often talk about politics about uh, as being about allowing people to sort of control their lives. Well that ought to extend to their kind of physical and cultural lives. You know, it ought to extend it to some degree to their kind of neighbourhoods. Some implicit right to a settled life. Whether that's black people in Brixton you know, resisting the takeover of white hipsters or you know, white people embarking. Um, this is about it's about stability, not I think homogeneity. Um, but finally, I do have one res- my one reservation, um, uh, and um, uh, about your um, book and your thinking more generally, is that you know you are you know you're like the proverbial man with the hammer who seals nail who sees nails everywhere. I mean, you, you know, you have spent your life studying ethnicity, um, and I do think that you sort of see it as in some ways uh, a kind of more powerful force than it actually is. Um, or rather, I mean, you know, how many, how many British people, actually white British people, do have a belief in, in common ancestry and myths of ancestry? Now, of course, if you put the question to them like that, they would probably say, what are you talking about? Because people don't normally think in ethnic terms. Um, um, but I just think, you know, I mean, the, the extraordinary sort of differentiation, I mean, you know, the extraordinary variety of kind of human tribes in, in this country today, the, the, the deeply embedded liberalism, the individualism, the, you know, the, the, uh, I think the penetration of the anti-racism norm, um, I think has, has, has weakened the force of ethnic feeling and thinking amongst the majority more perhaps than you give credit for. Um, and indeed, the example, somebody, the, the, one of the examples you use in your own book about how you know, the, 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 the kind of um, intellectual ideological force of, um, um, of kind of pro-immigration thinking in the United States um, actually, between you know, after 1990, so there had been a sort of persistent low-level kind of resistance to high levels of immigration in the US um, after, the, um, after the big increase in the late 60s, early 70s. But that's that change. Um, so this is obviously a sort of this is obviously something that is susceptible to political change. I mean, it's now returned. You know, Trump is in a sense a sort of symbol of the end of that period in the United States. But also, I mean, you know, to you know, find the point. I mean, it, you know, using my language of anywheres in some words. I mean, you know, all it seems to take is for you know a, a kind of 18-year-old to go to. A Russell Group University from whatever social class or ethnic background, and you know they, they join that kind of liberal-minded modern worldview that places a very low um, um, sort of priority on, on ethnic feeling. Um, so it seems something that it's quite easy to sort of shed. Um, and I and I anyway, i have be interested in your thoughts on, on the tenacity of, of ethnic feeling. Thank you. Thank you.
5: Hello from the United States. Uh, um, I'm I'm very pleased to be here. Um, Eric's work, um, I think, is very important. And um, his uh, idea of national identity is one that I share. which is to say that it can't, it, it can't simply be defined as, as for an American as belief in the de- Declaration of Independence or whatever, the creedal definition. But we all have a kind of, you know, uh, Freud would call an ego ideal. We all have a conception in our se- of, of who an American is. And, you know, you won't necessarily get it by asking somebody. And somebody will say, well, I'm not, I don't know. But then they'll go to a foreign country and somebody will start running down uh, the United States and all of a sudden, you know, uh, I am an American and I resent that very much. So there is a, uh, again, I think that that's essential to his conception of nationality and of ethnicity. And that, that's really, for me, the history of that is what's really valuable about that book. Now, having said that, I want to say that I completely disagree with his uh, monocausal explanation of politics, in terms of, uh, simply in, in terms of, cult, uh, well, if you want to say culture or values. And here I, I'm going to say something that's similar to Manu- what Manera had to say. And I'm going to talk about Trump and the United States, because that, that's what I know best. I'm not a, 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 what do you call, quant. I do interviews, and I actually talk people and interview people and, and read history and that's sort of the basis of what, uh, what, what I'm going to say here. Now why the, why the Trump voter and why Trump's success in 2016 and it's going to be a little simple minded but you know I can't help it. One of the major things you have to look at again is, the, is globalization. And by globalization I mean what starts to happen to capitalism and American capitalism, British capitalism, late 70s, early 80s, um, the end of Bretton Woods, the idea that if we remove restrictions on trade, on the movement of capital, on currency speculation and also on the movement of labor, uh, from one country to another, we will get a new era of stability and prosperity. And if we invite China into the World Trade Organization, we'll get convergence. They'll become more like us. They'll become liberal capitalist countries. So that doesn't work out for everybody. And there's a particular group that it doesn't work out for. You know, the British sociologists call them the left behinds. These are, in the United States, primarily people who live in small, medium-sized towns that were based in manufacturing uh, that, to a great extent, had their livings ripped out from them in the last 20, 30 years. A lot of jobs lost, some through automation, uh, some because of the China trade and trade with other countries were under undercut. Now, Okay, so that's the economic basis. But for these people, it's not just a matter of of poverty, because we're not actually talking about poor people. What's important is that a whole set of identities become threatened. These are people, again, who lived in small, medium-sized towns, in neighborhoods. They worked for the same company all their life. They expected their children. Would work for the same company. They had a whole network of friends. They had neighborhood bars, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you, this should be familiar to you in your country as well. And David writes about it in, in his book. For them, the problem is that with all the, with this kind these kinds of identities challenged, they're thrown back upon what what it is to be an American, the traditional family that they know. <coughs> Guns, which again for Americans are, are something to protect the home. It's not a matter of hunting. It really isn't. That really is, it is irrelevant. And you get from that the real, that's the base of the religious right, the Tea Party, and then the Trump uh, phenomenon in 2016. So again, it's about trade, losing jobs. It, it's about the traditional family, it's about guns, all these kind of things. But of course it is also about immigration. Immigration is an economic issue. Uh, jobs, most people are not the, in these places are not worried about uh, skilled immigrants coming and taking over Microsoft. That's not a big deal. It's, again, it's unskilled. The people that are t- that, from their standpoint, are filling up emergency rooms, so they have to pay higher taxes. And the cultural element also, uh, signs in Spanish. All the you know, the old neighborhood no longer exists. Okay, so you get this. You get a challenge to the way on, way of life. But you have to add one more thing to understand immigration and the Trump voter and what happens in 2016, or what happens in Europe after 2001, which is that the fears about immigrants become fused with the fear of Islamic terrorism. In 2016, people might forget this, but we had two major terrorist attacks in the United States, San Bernardino and Orlando. And don't think that that had no, that had no effect on the election. So people, and I, again, I did the interviews. They, they weren't just worried about you know the signs in Spanish or the emergency rooms, but they were worried that some guy would come into the country and blow up a shopping mall. You know, that's, and again, I think you'll find that in Europe, as well, so, so again, I think that's the kind of sensibility that formed the active base of the Trump movement and of the Trump supporters, and it's maybe 20% or 25% of the electorate now, those who strongly approve of Trump. Now, what's the other side of the story? Globalization didn't uh, necessarily imperil everyone. It helped create, in the United States and elsewhere, these uh, very prosperous metro centers, you know, New York, Boston, etc. Finance, technology, electronics, government, education. These are areas, again, where, where identities are much more fluid and multiple. You know, David calls them the Anywheres. I, always, I like to tell the story of when I first came to Washington in 1982. I used to play a game with myself With how long it would take somebody I met, you know, because everybody thinks they're a big shot in Washington, to tell me what university they went to. Especially Mm -hmm. if it was Harvard or Yale. If it was Towson State, I wouldn't hear about it. But again, what club they belong to, what network, the network of people, what kind of products they're going to produce that will live on after them. Uh, Again, a whole different kind of framework. So, their framework is much more cosmopolitan, even though, again, they celebrate Thanksgiving and they would, you know, got upset when 9 11 and everything like that. And a, a lot of American politics has consisted in the clash between the, this one, which you could call nationalist outlook, and this other outlook, which is cosmopolitan. The 2016 election was fought over that. Uh, but our 2018 midterms were fought over that. The Kavanaugh-Christine uh, Ford-Blasey hearings. Trump's idea, you know, this car- caravan, which I still am suspicious of how this whole thing originated, but, and again, think there, again, about Trump saying that there had to be some Mideasterners sneaking in among the uh, Hondurans. Uh, so, so, again, our politics are getting fought over this terrain. And the cosmopolitans again, it's not, don't go crazy about the left and the social justice warriors. I mean, the Wall Street Journal, open borders, you know, free trade, no restrictions on capital. It's, it's, it's not just a matter of the left. So just to, just to end, and I'm happy to talk about some of the ways in which this complicates and screws up American politics. But for me, the, the biggest problem is that it's a diversion from trying to resolve these problems created by the uneven development in our economy, and the fact that, you know, a lot of these towns in the South and Midwest are really hurting. And within the metro centers as well, you have kids who are facing a very uncertain future with this kind of multiplication of, of, of possibilities, but yet no, no stability. And that's where you get the Bernie uh, support. So, you know, there are all these real economic issues, but in the United States in 2016 and 2018, we've, we've been fighting it out more on the cultural terrain.
6: Thank you, very much, Robin. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, uh, I'm going to apologise, a) for being late, but uh, uh but also because uh, I'm slightly discombobulated today. I started the day <coughs> unexpectedly being compelled, David, to chair to, to chair a discussion between uh, Nikki Morgan. And Jacob Reese (laughs) Moss with Arlene Foster also, Um, and I'm still in (laughs) recovery. Let me first of all, like everybody else, congratulate Eric. Um, But I want to congratulate him for something other than you know anybody can write 500 pages. I'm going to steal anybody's work and get it into 500 pages. But what I think is incredibly important about the this project is that uh, Eric has um, tried to raise his head above the orthodox framing of arguments about identity politics, which I'm going to come back to in a moment. Uh, And he has asked the same question about what is happening right across the globe, um, and tried to understand some of the commonalities in development latter developments as it appears of European identity and American identity so on. Well. Uh, across the globe there are probably three things that are really mattering. One is the advance and rapid development of technology and its change and its change in practice and the culture of the workplace. Secondly extraordinary um, extraordinary changes in demography, some of which uh, a symptom of which is levels of immigration which are unprecedented in human history 400 million people live and work outside the um, outside the country of their birth, the Chinese plan to move a quarter of a billion people in 10 years off the land uh, and into cities, uh, these things are extraordinary uh, and China itself and its challenge economically to the West, these are the things we are, I think, making uh, the real waves, and some of what we're discussing here are the reports uh, of those questions. To come directly to some of these as my colleagues here have been discussing, <coughs> you know, we are. Uh, at the heart of this is there is a sort of argument to be had. Uh, James Carville wrote up on the wall of Clinton's ninety-two campaign, "If the economy's stupid." There are some of us who think that if that was ever true, it is no longer true. It just is not the case that everything is reducible to uh, material or economic advantage. Um, That is the stuff of politics, as we've uh, had it set in this country and most of the West. But I think Eric's work, uh, seeing Matthew Goodwin sitting there, Mm -hmm. Matthew's work. I think it's telling anybody who actually wants to listen that that just isn't the case. We cannot uh, actually understand what is happening. We cannot grasp the choices people are making uh, in, the com- in the old framework. Uh, and we're seeing, I mean, as one of the possibilities about what's going to happen in this country in the next three or four months is that both of our largest parties will split in some dramatic way. And that is partly because the political architecture that we sustain simply doesn't correspond any longer to the uh, real cleavages that exist in our society. Uh, Trump, of course, uh, strides across these discussions all the time. So let me get him out of the way and say something that I don't suppose anybody really wants to hear. I think he's probably, probably the first... He may not be the first to spot the change in what's going on in our societies, but he is certainly the first to gamble on it and the first to win on it. Lord Ashcroft um, did a really revealing piece of politics post-2016 referendum. I won't go into details of it because we want to get on to the discussion, but in essence, what it demonstrated extraordinarily strongly is that what divides Brexit voters from Leave voters is not their attitude towards redistribution, uh, tax, capitalism. But if you really want to look for what the differences are, ask them about multiculturalism. They split three to one each way, the wrong one, in opposite ways. Ask them about feminism. They split two to one in opposite ways. Now, these are not... ...interpretations of some economic problem that they feel they face. These are are bald numbers about the way people think they want to live. What are their values? What matters to them? And I think that there is a sort of continuing attempt, particularly on the left... ...to pretend that these things are not true. In the same way as we pretend in this country that actually, you know, religion's going out of fashion. Actually, the truth of the matter is, we are probably an outlier in the whole world. Everywhere else in the world, religion is absolutely roaring back down the track, uh, sometimes in the most ghastly and violent ways, but it's real. So the point I want to make here is that uh, the economy stupid may have been replaced by something quite... Uh, just as Pippie, but quite different. Which is it's, its identity, you idiot. And I think we need to get this now. David uh, talked a bit, about, and I've heard the, the phrase "liberal left" several times. Now, these are people I run into them a lot who tell me that race doesn't exist um, because actually, the more in common that divides us, and our DNA is the same, and all this stuff. Well, just as personal, though, it's kind of difficult for me to get that. So, to accept that, not just because of what I look like, but also uh, I come from a family which has a racially coded condition, sickle cell anemia, which is partly what kills my father. So anybody who tells me race doesn't exist has to explain to me how that works, uh, especially if a white person says it to me. You know, I've never done it, but I, want to. I always want to ask, so which one of your brothers or sisters has it? So, but there is a point about this class which I think is very important because they have enormous amounts of voice in our society, and one of the things they use that voice to do is to try to export their own de-racination. Uh, one of the consequences of the changes in, in, in social structure in this country has been that we have a political and media class. Many of whom are somehow are actually. Disconnected for good reason, geographically, educationally, and so on, from their own parents, grandparents, and so on. And I think one of the difficulties we have with these debates is that they are dominated by people who are, to some extent, completely uh, or they are by choice separated from uh, that background, and they think everybody else ought to. Everybody else ought to. They think we live in a superstition and everybody else ought to think that when they get, you know, when they get grown up. So uh, our debates are dominated, I think to some extent, by uh, a minority. Why is this important? Well, I have a business partner who says a rather interesting thing. He makes the argument that for most of human history, affinities, the kind of things David's been writing about in his book, have been the the cultural and uh, familial affinities have been the things that ruled social cleavage. The last 150 years, for a whole variety of reasons, industrial revolution, from <coughs> all the rest of it, we've kind of kidded ourselves that that's not the case. Actually, what we're seeing now is a research, reassertion of business as usual. And Trump gambled on this, and Trump won. And let's remind ourselves about one thing. I go some of the way with what John said, but let's just remember I am. I am a quant, right? Q U A N T. Um, Let's remember, Trump won in every white demographic, with exception of white graduate women. Whiteness was the best, the best indicator Mm -hmm. of a vote for Trump. Uh, I suspect if we actually did it, we'd probably find it something similar in relation to Brexit. And just as a note, uh, in passing, if you spend time in Silicon Valley, which I did earlier this year, the enemy there, by the way, isn't, you know, immigrants in general, it's Asian Americans, it's Asian Americans, uh, because they are dominant in the engineering departments of the big companies there. Lastly, let me just come on to the point about white identity, where I don't, I don't, take issue with Eric at all, but I think there are some difficulties that uh, arise from the description that, that Eric has given us that we need to start thinking about. The white identity and the identity associated with race, I think we probably have to think about not just as biological in some way, but also behavioural. Um, I think, and what, what do I mean by that? Um, when my parents first came here, my father said the thing that most surprised him was to see a white man sleeping, sweeping the floor. It wasn't that they were, we were used to. We were used to them. Um, there wasn't a big issue. But the fact that this individual did a thing that my father had never seen him doing back where we came from, in what was then British Standard, was a thing that marked, uh, marked him out. And I think one of the things that we're going to come across more and more uh, over the next few years is that both data and experience will reveal some difficulties about our thinking about race because it's not just attached to the individual but it's also attached to behaviour. We'll see some of that emerging when we see results about ethnic pay gaps, where there are not just differences uh, by ethnicity in levels of pay, but there is occupational segregation very, very strongly present in this country. And that will raise some questions about that kind of difference. And we come back to Trump in the United States, uh, I would say, and I, I spent quite a lot of time, did, earlier on this year I spent three weeks going across from Florida through the Midwest, through the South and then Midwest, and then across to California for uh, a piece I was doing. And one of the things that, I thought this before, but it was confirmed for me, was that if there was a single reason that Donald Trump got over the line, it was a very simple thing, it was the Affordable Care Act. In September before the election, the bills started to land on people's doorsteps. So it became an issue. Now, why does it enter this debate? It enters this debate because the Affordable Care Act became code, and clearly the White House just didn't get this or believe it. It became code for a transfer of resources from white America to urban black America. And I, myself, had no doubt. That that made a huge difference, uh, not just in the sort of in Trump Central, but in places where really he ought not to have won. Uh, so I think what Eric is really asking us to look at, though I think many of us would rather not look at, is the fact that this thing, question about white identity, isn't just a sort of historical, ancestral, kind of atavistic set of instincts. But it is also to do with behaviours, it is also to do with, as I think David said, interests. And really, the argument here is do we think that that set of interests or that cleavage of interests is more important than the set that we've always regarded as being the most important to our society? I happen to think it is, but that's the debate. Thank you.
0: Well, can I thank the panel um, very much, not just for their um, fascinating and provocative comments, but also for keeping to time, which is unheard of at one of these events. Um, I'm going to take some questions, three um, at a time, just to um, make things easier, and then ask Eric if you want to respond to those and to the panel, any of the panel's comments. And can I, just, can I just ask everyone to ask questions, not to make monologues, please? <laughs> Thanks. Anyone got any questions at all? Yes, yes.
7: Oh, uh, yes, uh, you mentioned um, white liberals or cosmopolitans, and then uh, you mentioned the other group of are like uh, conservatives, social conservatives, yeah. but then you go and mention that without qualifier, white people live in white areas without, speaking you, you don't say white conservatives,
0: could you speak up a little bit, please? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yes, and ask a, a question, and thanks. <laughs>
7: um, and the uh, stratification, and uh, the American mentioned uh, uh, about his time in Washington, which I happen to know is 80% black, <coughs> uh, but he didn't talk as if he were talking about black people uh, who you met. Um, the stratification. Are, I do you let white liberals off the hook? Because I don't see the moment. Someone of uh, different ethnicity threatens them uh, economically or positionally, they tend to lose it, absolutely. I refer you to the 2010 papal visit where white has just lost it.
0: Okay, so that's one question.
2: Thanks very much. I have a question about Canada. Um, is Canada an outlier? Is this an area
7: where the liberal anti racist moralism has been so <coughs> successful? that there is no fight back. Super. thank you. Yes? Um,
1: I just wanted to ask, maybe you explain it in the book, but when you're talking about that ultimately becoming a mixed-race society, obviously that would only be within
3: white majority places, I'm assuming US and Europe. So if you're looking into the next century when that's been supposedly achieved, what does that mean for immigration at that point? people are going kind to of feel it's
0: more fluid or easier to become less borders, what that means for the next country. Thanks for it. Eric, so that is Canada an outlier, and why do white liberals lose it?
2: <laughs> um, well, it's a bit unfair on white liberals, I think. Um, am I? I but I, I think the only, what, what I would say to that is, in terms of the, resi- I and mean, I'll pick up that residential question, because one of the things that is interesting is that between white liberals and conservatives, white UKIP voters, and Labour <coughs> Green voters, for example, they they all have a tendency, their movements are very similar. So they move to white areas in very similar numbers. So whether you are a UKIP voter or a Green voter doesn't affect where you live very much. But whether you are white or minority has a huge, huge effect in what the kind of neighborhood you choose. So I suppose there, the only thing I would say is it is not the case that People who vote for diversity tend to move to diversity, and that that perhaps speaks a bit to, hopefully, your question. So it is true white liberals are not moving to diverse areas, uh, which perhaps would be, you might expect from their ideology. So maybe in that sense, I'm not sure if I answered the question, but we can pick that up later. Um, Canada, yes, I do know Canada uh, very well. Uh Uh, What's very interesting, uh, so in my model, I'm suggesting that the sort of, strength of that anti-racist norm and expanse and, and institutionalization of it does work to actually keep the politics of immigration off the agenda at first. And it's just a question of how strongly embedded that norm is. In Canada it, it managed to be in English Canada, sorry, not French Canada, English Canada managed to be very successful because of the collapse of Britannic nationalism and loyalism with the end of the British Empire. Uh, so that left a vacuum uh, that sort of left liberal culture is able to fill with multiculturalism, for example. Uh, now, just recently in the last, and so in Quebec, there was an election where the populist right CAQ uh, won on a, an immigration reduction platform, which is a major milestone in Quebec politics. So they won a majority of seats, that was a big change. But in English Canada, English Canada is still a holdout. but of course, a couple of things have occurred. One is the Im- opposition to immigration. In, a lot of the polling series shows uh, an increase now. And there's a new party called the People's Party, uh, which is led by Maxine Bernier. So the big test will come in the next federal election next year to see um, whether Canada will remain the exception uh, it has been. Um, right, what was the last question we had? I can't even read my own writing here. Um, yes, yeah, so you were talking about... Uh, yes, yeah, so when we get to a, a mixed-race majority in the next century... I think, actually, there, it's plausible to think that there will be a more relaxed, perhaps, attitude to migration when people see that, oh, okay, there's a lot of saying assimilation. I think that's plausible. Um, and so what, what I think is we're kind of, in, you know, in, the, in the medium term, in the next, in our lifetime, uh, you know, white majorities will still be wedded to an older conception Now it will be changing with these generations. But I think in the sort of medium term, that's where I think that, you know, pressure to lower migration will be greatest, and I think longer term, perhaps that pressure might abate with this assimilation.
5: So. Can I do a footnote? No, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. no I, this is just on the question of what what it, Eric talks about a mix, so so-called mixed race. I want to read you a, a quote from uh, Harry Truman in nineteen eighteen. Uh, this is he was writing his uh, cousin. He visited New York. And he said, uh, he said, This town has 8 million people. 7,500,000 of them are of Israelish extraction. 400,000 WAPs, and the rest are white people. Now, wh- what does that mean? The Jews and Italians were not white people. It took, you know, what, 40 years? After World War II, I am now a white person. It's happening in the United States. I think, you know, the Richard Alba, the sociologist, the mixed uh, marriages with Hispanics, what what like what 25% of the kids now identify themselves, quote, as white. Asian Americans within a generation are going to be, I, I believe, are going to be white. So I think, again, I'm just trying to to feed into your idea of this mixed race thing. and But the problem in America, again, is the white-black problem and that form of integration. And that's our, you know, that's the Achilles heel of America and how that's going to be resolved. Mm-hmm. But as far as the Hispanics, again, mm-hmm. so. Oh, did you want to pick that Well, you know, yeah. being, being sort of,
2: you know, white, Hispanic, and Asian myself, I understand. But no, I mean, I think, <laughs> but, but no, I think you're right. I, um, but what was interesting in the U.S. was that, that the, 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 there was the triple melting pot where the Protestants married Protestants across ethnic lines, but not outside religion, and then it wasn't really until between the 60s and the 80s that you got that melting across the Protestant Catholic Jewish line. So it's, it's, it was actually quite late, and then suddenly it happened really quickly. I suspected that this
5: might be something similar where. Well, we had a Catholic president. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. 1960, yeah. 1960. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, steady we... on, guys. I mean,
6: look. Let's <laughs> take. <steady laughs> like, um, I mean, <laughs> uh, you'll you know the numbers on, on this area. Uh, though before uh, 1950, it was probably unlikely for a Catholic to marry not a Catholic, after it became possible and plausible. Yeah. But it is probably still the case, as almost everywhere else in the world, that Catholic Americans will probably marry another Catholic American. As do certainly the case, Jewish Americans tend to marry Jew- Jewish Americans. In this country, uh, the largest group of mixed race people are African-Caribbean whites, but they're an outlier. Amongst South Asians, fewer than one in 10 marry out of the community. So uh, I think let's let's just, Steady on here. I know it's what we all want to hear is going to happen, but actually, oh, sorry, I said I'm a quant. All of the numbers tell us since the
3: last war that that isn't what takes place. Is that true? Well, is that true? Because well, I thought your your figures. <laughs> I thought your figures showed that there was quite
2: a lot of yeah. to and yeah, the, well, the, well Jew, the, the Jews have about a 50% out marriage. Now, that will change as more of them become Hasidic, which they will be in the Jewish and, uh, That's another story. Um, but there is a lot of, you know, Jewish and non-Jewish intermarriage in the U.S., at least 50%. What I'd say on the on the Muslim... Okay. One, one, one more <laughs> sentence. By the
6: way, I'm African-Americans, <laughs> most, a lot of them look white, are still African-Americans. Plessy B. Ferguson was particularly the... Um, Desegregation, uh, one thing that established, maybe, upon segregation in the United States, was pursued by a man who could have passed for white. So I think uh, let's not let's not take the anecdote as a current because it
2: isn't. No, that's that's true. But what I was, I mean, the black-white intermarriage has increased dramatically in the U.S. Actually, I mean, it's it's gone. It was gone from like 0.2 percent in 1960 to over 10 percent. I mean, so it's. It is a big change, but you're right, you know, it's not as simple. Let's
0: take a few more questions. Yeah. Right. Uh,
4: in Europe, white people are the indigenous population. Why have we never referred to it? Okay. Uh, yes, it right. First, nation uh, question. Uh, I just think that Trevor's comment about intermarriage and uh, statistic a few years ago 60% of the AME in Britain supported less immigration. Doesn't Eric's book, I haven't read it, co-mingle cultural conservatism with white identity?
6: And wouldn't it be more helpful
7: if is a way to disaggregate something what I don't think about it as from cultural conservatism, that stability, clannishness, uh as something different from white identity? So are you co-mingling them, Eric, and can they be disaggregated in point or some way? Um Eric, you've talked about multivocalism today and elsewhere um, as a concept and my question for the kind of whole panel to pick it up, is about the need to increase effective dialogue and discourse which doesn't involve people talking past one another, simply because um, dialogue kind of, unders- kind of takes the view that there is an inherently agonistic aspect to it, of people disagreeing and I'm not sure that this cosmopolitan liberal individualism can conceive of disagreement very effectively, how can we reform that hegemonic view to account to account for the fact that there are different values when liberal universalism as an in inherent theory believes in universalizing its values and not
2: accounting for disagreement.
0: Thanks, Eric.
2: Um, yes, well, okay, so the first question, you know, why aren't I White Britain referred to as an indigenous people. Yeah, I think you're right that, that the language of indigenousness has t- tended to focus on, you know, Inuit and First Nations and, and, and this kind of thing. But you're right, I mean, in a way, technically, the white British aren't indigenous people. I mean, I, I sort of have this view of it, that, that, that you can have something called indigenization over time, that when new groups are multi-generational, and bury their dead in, in, in a new land and develop attachments to the new land, they can become more indigenous. So I suppose I don't see quite as starkly, and, and this actually you know, is a problem for both the left and the right, because I think on the, on the right side they're comfortable with the idea of say indigenous Europeans, um, and on the left they're comfortable with this idea that indigenous Native Americans what I'm talking about would mean that, for example, white Americans would be an indigenized group or, or also Protestants in Ireland would be indigenized in the sense that they have generations history there and are now attached to this new territory. But that also means that Afro-Caribbeans in Britain would be indigenized as well because they are now have a, a narratives that are tied to the land here. So I guess I don't see it as starkly as... I, <laughs> I also see myself as a First Nation. Oh, right. <laughs> okay. Um, question about cultural conservatism. Yeah, I mean, one of the points of my book is, is that, yeah, um, so attachment to in-group is, is not the same as hostility to out-group. Um, and this is one of the big mistakes, and David mentioned that, and psycho- psychologically these things aren't correlated except in times of war. Um, when, I say, when you say cultural conservatism, I mean, in the book I talk about um, groups wanting to maintain a historic presence in a territory, that being a form of conservatism, and it's tied up with white identity. But it doesn't have to be exclusive to whites, and I think, I didn't have time to get into this, but ethno-traditional identity, what you see, particularly in the American data, a lot of particularly Hispanic and Asian Americans are attached to a, the kind of traditional ethnic composition of the U.S., Trump voters I'm talking about mainly, uh, quite astounding. Uh, you know, in some of the survey data, for example, this question that, uh, there's a question that was taken after the Charlottesville riots in 2017. Uh, the question was, do you agree with the statement white people are under attack in America today? Um, 70% of Asian and Hispanic Trump voters said yes to that. Astounding, really. And, and so it really broke more by ideology <coughs> than the vote. So I think you do get this phenomenon of. Ethnic minor- minorities attached to an ethno-traditional form of national identity, so that they have a national identity in which, in that conception of national identity, there is a white majority alongside minorities, and they are attached to keeping that, which is a, which is very hard to grasp. But you're right. So that's, that's I think this harshly explains this minority. Eric Neer the wants to come on. Yes, yeah, sorry. Nice I yeah. you. One of the things
3: that, one of the values that people um, never say <coughs> explicitly, but I think is implicit in what we're discussing about immigration, um, two values loyalty and solidarity, and the extent to which we, uh, we base our citizenship on those values. So it's interesting when the, the whole thing about the Nepalese. Um, uh, veterans coming to this country, and, you know, uh, there was a big campaign led by Joanna Longley. Many people in Britain, and all the kind of tabloid newspapers said, this is an outrage. These people were loyal to Britain, they should be able to come over. There was a very strong feeling that they had, uh, despite their cultural differences, expressed a loyalty to and solidarity with the people here. And the same with the Windrush scandal, that people came out and said, this is crazy, these people have given to this country. And I wonder if some of the sense of cultural difference or ethno-national difference is mitigated by the sense that when immigrants come, that they, you know, they do, they do have solidarity with people here. And the the, the globalist uh, mindset, of the kind of cosmopolitan liberal, which which John talked about, is it's, it's actually they who, in the minds of you know the, the small town America, would say, well, you know, they're being disloyal to us. They're not expressing solidarity with us. And the same thing happened in the Brexit referendum. Lots of people felt that, you know, the George Osbournes of this world, the Camerons of this world, didn't feel any solidarity with them. And that the, the country split um, with a, a huge amount of hostility between groups that should have felt some kind of sense of coherence and uh, 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 connectedness. So I, I don't know if it's so much that it's cultural difference; it's a sense that these people have not got our interests at, at heart. And I think that despite cultural differences, you can transcend that with a sense of you know uh, political
4: connection. Can, 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 can I? can a <laughs> go. Um, I mean, just, I mean, really kind of, I mean, I want you to answer the the, my, the one reservation uh, uh, that I had about your book. And let just, let me just follow that up. Uh, and it sort of follows on. Well, in, in some way I'm, I'm going to contradict what you just said about loyalty and solidarity. Because I mean, just think, I mean, dominant, you know, the majority agencies do not exist. politically Um, although they may express themselves subliminally through (coughs) hostility to large-scale immigration possibly through Brexit, through voting for populist parties and so on but isn't it extraordinary, I mean my point about how weak politically the kind of ethno-national majority, whatever you want to call it is, I mean we're seeing it today, I mean we're seeing it in the the Brexit negotiation I mean it, it reveals just how weak that that kind of ethno-national consciousness is. Our inability to come together as a country, I mean, it would have been inconceivable 50 or certainly 100 years ago um, for really quite a large subset of the country and quite a large subset of the elite to essentially be on the side of of the country's opponents in this negotiation, which is what quite a large part of the elite are. If you read the evening Standard every day, it's impossible not to get that impression. Um, And that, I mean... And it doesn't mean, I mean, all the things you write about in your book are true, I mean, I'm talking about the way the political expression of ethnicity, uh, and, and of majority ethnicity, is, is weaker and weaker and weaker. It is not strengthening, um, and it's not going to, and, and for that reason, I suspect it won't play the kind of role that you, that you say it will in the book. Yeah, let me just, do this. I mean, I
2: think what's, what, what happens with the value changes in the 60s and the individualism is, this, is a polarization, a splitting. So, I do think that it's weaker, but it's also stronger. I mean, I think in a way the populism shows that, that it's, it's showing up the polarization between those who have a more post-ethnic and value-based mm. attachment and those who have a more ethnic, traditional type of attachment. Mm. Um, it's not always expressed, I don't think, in ethnic terms, because it's often expressed as national identity. And, mm. and the kind of questions that get at this are, um, you know, so 51% of people in Britain say it is important to, at least somewhat important to British ancestry to be considered a real Britain, right? So it's, it's questions that, and, and real or true American, but similar surveys in the United States that also elicit these kinds of differences, right? So it's not about being just British, but being truly or really. That's actually getting at, at ethnicity, but it's completely intertwined with, with national identity. So I think it is being expressed, it's just being expressed in a form which isn't identifiably ethnic. And it's also, yes, you're right, there has been a drift away from uh, that majority ethnic sentiment, but only amongst part of the population. I think what we're seeing now is a reassertion. In, in,
6: uh just want one sentence about the <laughs> attitudes of immigrants themselves. Um, I, I think we shouldn't walk out of here uh, with the passive notion that immigrants do basically have no agency. I mean, let's bear in mind, these people are the odd ones in the village. They're the ones who get up and go, and they choose. And one of the reasons they choose, for example, America, is because they believe in America. Favorite film, Godfather, the very first words of the entire trilogy, are. I believe in America, spoken by an Italian immigrant. And that's one of the reasons that that's the reason people come here. I mean, let's not get too dazzled by the notion that immigrants are just poor people who are fleeing famine and all the rest of it. Most immigrants move because they want to move, they want to move to something better, and they want to move to somewhere where they like and believe in the values. So I wouldn't want the discussion to sort of Morph into a place where, you know, they're just a kind of ma- uh, an indif- uh, undifferentiated
0: mass without agency. We've got we've got about ten minutes left, so can we maybe take one or two more questions? Could you, could you yeah, I guess, Can I just i
2: just want to briefly talk about the uh, this multi I I think so. In the book, I talk about needing to allow for a wider range of discussion and needing to bring together mutual understanding between people who like diversity of change and those who like stability and continuity and, you know, less diversity, for example, and that, that, to come to some kind of, kind of an accommodation, so I agree with you, there has to be that open discussion, and that's where I really think, you know, attempts to shut down one's, you know, attempts to sort of shut down the side that says, you know, I want less change and less diversity, I think are very problematic, because they don't allow us to have that. Discussion to reach the compromise. So, the more we're dealing with taboos, the less productive the discussion is going to be. We have to have taboos, absolutely. We have to have red lines, but they, those red lines have to correspond to you know, concepts that, that everyone understands to be, let's say, racism. Uh, but, but you can't start calling everything racism, or else it shuts down the debate. Uh. Right.
0: Two more questions, one here. One.
2: Yeah, um, Eric. We talked quite a bit
6: um, this evening about the United States, which worries me slightly because I'm not sure that you can generalise across these very different Western countries. And, um, for example, in the UK, it'd be pretty rare until very recently for somebody to conceptualise them, themselves as being white. You know, a regional identity, English, Irish,
7: those types of identities would have mattered much more. The US, much more racially divided. So can we make these big sweeping
0: statements about how people feel,
7: how they're thinking? Thank you. I'm mindful of the title of the the poster behind you. Can I just slightly change it? What will be the impact on British politics and public life when we achieve this rate, you say, of 50% possibly mixed heritage population? Not on the majority, but on the minorities that are left they will not necessarily be white, black, Asian or whatever. I'm interested in what will be the effect on the minority because we appear to have ignored them.
0: Eric, do you want to take that? Um,
2: Right, so just back... Yes, you're right, that in in Britain there, because it's historically been overwhelmingly white, that's not been a salient category. But again, I would get back to this... If you think about... Um, what is in the minds when, when, when a typical Briton thinks about what a, what a typical Britain looks like and, you know, they would imagine them as white and so, and so would by the way minorities so would foreigners right? um, and they would simply not think about that because they would be the same as that imagined ideal type or typical type um, you, know, you just have to imagine if the country had been majority black and had only recently been settled by white immigrants, or had only there had been a, a, a group of white immigrants that had arrived very recently. I mean, the conception of Brit would be totally different. So I think that even though it's not an explicit identity, I think that nested in notions of British identity is that sort of sense of um, white British ethnicity. And, and questions such as, that's why a question that says, how important, you know, is it important to have British ancestry to be truly or really British? gets a 51% response because probably people subliminally are thinking about that. And as a society gets more diverse, that comes out of the woodwork more. So I do think it will become uh, important um, impact on, on minorities. Yeah, I mean, this is very futuristic, talking about the mixed race majority. That's the next century. What will be the impact on minorities? I don't know. I, I don't think minorities will have much of a problem with them. And I, because in a way, I think there's something different about... Um, groups that have a, you know that narrate themselves as being attached to a place in which they are living, what in you know, the literature are known as primary ethnic groups, um, and they're the ones that tend to be involved in things like secession and political violence. I, I think minorities that are have a diaspora identity, I don't think are going to be that exercised by the, the growth of. The mixed race majority,
4: but this is all quite futuristic. Aren't section. they going to be highly religious? I mean, the ones that do not join the melting <laughs> pot. I mean, that's, that's what you argue, isn't it? That you know, yeah. there's going to be Hasidic Jews and traditional Muslims who are, who won't break, but they will be the minorities. Right. Um, so this is,
2: yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is towards at the very end of the book. Uh, and one of the stats is that in you know, in the, well, in a couple of centuries there should be about 300 million Amish. <laughs> and There will be 600 million ultra-orthodox Jews, and so yeah, we're going to be in a different world. But yeah, you're right that the, these high fertility religious sects—the Mormons will be dramatically more important in the United States.
0: That's my—I think I think on that incredibly <laughs> optimistic. No, we've got so much to look forward to, regardless of what happens with Brexit. Um, can I first, can I just um, point out there will be copies of Eric's book available to sign. He's he's more than willing to do this and your homework is to get through all 600 pages by <laughs> Christmas. I want to I express my sincere thanks for Eric. I've read the book. It is a fantastic book. I, I wholly recommend it. Also to the panellists, to Trevor, Munira, David and John, for some for wonderfully erudite and provocative comments. And for all of you, um, we have more events going on of some sort or another eventually, but please keep in touch, and thank you all for coming. <laughs>